Welcome to the XEGS Cart by Cart podcast, the first and only podcast covering Atari's last answer to the 8-bit gaming system. In episode 16, we have a band of Broderbun brothers. First, we put our geese with glee to storm the warlord Akuma's castle to save the beautiful princess Mariko in Karataka. Then it's time to dig into a puzzling platformer to find some gold with Load Runner. Now here are your hosts, David and Michael. Hey everybody, well, let's start the uh, show off with some general news. I just want to say I want to apologize for episode 15 and it taking about 15 months to get out. Um, both David and I had either something going on that was you know, pressing or uh, there was a lack of motivation. <laughs> but uh, we finally got it out and we hope to um, change that. I'm, I'm now uh, being a complete nag to David to get... Uh, get these things out a lot faster than that long. So hopefully we can stay on track and, um, uh, you know, get them done. Uh, in addition, I think if you were listening, you'll notice we mentioned Christmas. Well, that was, um, not last Christmas. That was actually the Christmas before. So when we say Christmas this time, if we've mentioned something about it, it's going to be, you know, Christmas 2021. So just so you're aware, some of you might've been confused. Um, uh, other general news, Vince Cool has been working an update to Raster Music Tracker or RTM. Now, if you're not uh, familiar with this program, it's a tool, it's a tracker tool to make a four channel or eight channel, um, pokey music for the Atari. You can do it on the, the, make it on the PC and then convert it over to the Atari. So it's a great little program. It was originally written by a guy named Raster, hence the Raster Music Tracker. Uh, unfortunately he died in 2011, um, uh, because of a train accident. So we thought that the development on that was dead, but I guess Vince was able to get in touch with a guy named Matthew and he had the source code. So now Vince has been making some great updates to the UI, improvements in the program, and um, he's just been working hard at it. Um, the funny thing is at about the same time when he started working on it, um, I didn't even know this, but I started working on a, um, a, a document or a script, I should say, to as a tutorial to use the applications. I was always wanted to learn how to use it. And our past host, um, Bill Kendrick, he also wanted to learn it, but we were like looking at it like, this thing is daunting. So I just sat down and just play with it and try to read as much as I could. Unfortunately, the instructions that uh, Raster wrote were, he was from Poland and um, it didn't translate very well. So it's a little still a little confusing. But the good news is Vince has also been updating the, the um, documentation as well to make it a little more um, understandable. But what my intention is, is to, for people to follow along and actually create a simple song and, and um, you know, learn by doing. So that should be coming. I'm about 15 pages in at this point in time, but uh, you know, I don't know when I'll get to the YouTube, but hopefully sooner than 15 months, like our podcast. So, but I just like to publicly thank Vince for his hard work on what he's doing. And it's very appreciated. So uh, aside from that, um, what I've been up to? Well, I finally met Captain Bob. Uh, I'm sure some of you who listen to uh, David's other podcasts, the 5200 podcast, uh, have has heard Captain Bob on there. And he's only about 20 minutes away from me. So I drove over one day and we chatted for almost an hour in his front yard. And um, basically he said, uh, he reminded me that he had a 2600 Pac-Man Jr. or Junior Pac-Man carton box for me. And I took Totally forgot about it, so I just went over there, and he goes, oh, and by the way, would you like this uh, Suncom Starfighter joystick? So I took that off his hands. I used to have a slick stick back in the day, which is I think is made by the same company, so it was a good little joystick. Uh, in addition to that, of course, uh, as I mentioned, Christmas came. I got a bunch of good stuff. Um, one of the things I got, well, 
doing my research for this podcast, um, I found that uh, Jordan Mechner, the guy who wrote Karataka, um, released a couple books. One of them was The Making of Karataka, um, journal from 1982 to 85. And basically it covers Jordan's time at Yale, um, his daily activities, recreations, and um, essentially the evolution of the game, as well as other games he was working on at the time. He also pops over to um, uh, Broderbund and talks about that a little bit. So it was quite interesting. It's um, essentially, it's a journal. So think of it like that. It's what he does day by day. Um, in addition to that, he also wrote uh, The Making of Prince of Persia. I haven't gotten to that yet. And then I also found a memoir, a, um, the Sid, sorry, Sid Meier's memoir, A Life in Computer Gaming. I got that in a hardcover. And I also got Howard Scott Warshaw's um, Once Upon Atari, How I Made History by Killing the Industry. So that ought to be really interesting. And if you're interested in picking up some of these books, I will put this in the show notes. You guys can look it up. And in addition to that, I got a Ultimate Atari Video or UAV kit, two of them. Um, I put one in my 1200XL to improve the video. It looks fantastic. And I'm planning on putting the other one in my 800XL. And um, yeah, so that's my one of my next projects coming up. So many, so many projects. Um, what else did I get? Oh, I got um, some signs for when I get my game room. Um, one of them actually says game room. And the other one is a desktop. I say it's basically Pac-Man and it lights up and it's got a couple of the ghosts following it. So kind of nice little addition to a, a gaming room. Oh, so my NES, I fixed my NES. I mentioned that last um, last episode, I think. But I didn't have any games for it, so I got Super Mario and Duck Hunt. Uh, great for testing out the joysticks as well as the light gun. So um, if I ever have to fix anybody else's NES, I'm, I'm ready to go. And I got some uh, control a controller as well for it. Didn't have one of those either. So, yeah. So now I can actually, uh, well, I could play the NES if I just got a power supply. So that's that's the next thing I need to get. And, uh, of course, finally, I got the FujiNet. I've been waiting since it was mentioned. Um, and I just, I don't know why I kept putting it off. I think I saw updates coming. And there was like, oh, this is coming and this is coming. And finally, they came out with the external antenna one. And all the issues seem to be fixed in it. So... I finally got it and it's pretty awesome. It is really neat. It's got, a, I got the built-in SD card for it, but it's sort of unnecessary because you just connect online to one of the servers. You can either run one locally or go connect to one that uh, SMS is hosting and download all the games. And, you know, it's at your fingertips. So it's it's a really cool thing. And in fact, I sat in on um, Thomas Cherryholm, one of the creators, he did a kind of a introduction to development uh, write software for it, networking software. So you can write games that actually network with other computers so you can play multiplayer games. I don't know how fast it will be, but um, you can just basically modify your existing game to add this little networking feature. So I was thinking about what can I make for uh, the Atari that would have networking. So got some ideas. I'm kind of fiddling with some things. We'll see how far I get. So yeah. so that's that's what I've been up to. What about you, David? Well, I just wanted to ask before I give my update. Sure. Um, are some of these games, these network games that you can play with FujiNet? Mm -hmm. um, I thought I remember in my memory there was like a racing one. I don't know how sophisticated it was, but do you remember anything like that? I don't. I do know uh, when I talked to Thomas on his, he, he had a little streaming session. Mm. And he mentioned, he gave me the link to where all the games reside. Uh, I can definitely look and, and uh, see if what's in there. But um, 
it does have built-in um, support for um, for MIDI Maze. So there's an 8-bit version well, maybe of MIDI that's Maze. The, maybe that's the one I'm yeah, thinking about. That's the first-person shooter that was uh, it came out on the ST originally, and then somebody wrote it for the the 8-bit system. But that was a that you had to hook up to MIDI cables. So mm-hmm. having the network capability is just you know it's going to be amazing. So I just wonder how this. For me, as a person who totally missed this whole part of history, mm-hmm. this whole part of the bulletin boards and mm-hmm. the dial-up, like the only time I can remember anything like that was watching war games. Like that's as far as my experience is with that kind of thing back then, where you could dial into bulletin boards and do that kind of stuff. Yep. But um, I'm just thinking for somebody who did it at the time back in the 80s, it must be almost like it reliving it again. Well, it was, yeah, I, I did have, I tried a couple of games that were supposed to have, you know, network capability through modem. Sure. Never successful. I mean, it was, okay. and I called a lot of BBSs back in the day. I lived on BBSs. Um, but yeah, I always wanted a game where you could play over the network and just can never get them to work. I don't know why. There weren't that many of them. So this is kind of a, this is a game changer because it really opens up um, the possibilities. And like I said, um, you could play stuff like card games or, um, you know, board games, whatever, or you could probably even play, you know, games that are, are, um, you know, fast paced arcade games. There's going to be the limitation of what the Atari can produce on the screen, you know, so you can't have like, uh, you know, if player missile graphics, you only have so many. So, but I'm sure anybody who's clever enough can make it all work or, you know, trick the system into allowing for more than that many players. But yeah. Well, I definitely look forward to your updates as you have more time with this device. Yeah, yeah. I just, like I said, I got it like the other day and I just been playing around with it. But um, also, it's like I said, it's inspired me to kind of like kick my butt and make a game on my own. I've been, I've been wanting to make a game since I was a kid. So it's like, it's about time, right? <laughs> yep. Well, everybody, so basically my updates will not be as detailed. <laughs> Or as technologically advanced as my uh, partner here, but uh, I'll give it a go. So basically, recently I picked up a copy of Venture from Video 61 and Atari sales. It's a great version and a lot of fun to play. Now, I got it for the Atari 5200 version, but they also sell an Atari 8-bit version on cartridge. Uh, You can see it in action on Willie's YouTube channel, Arcade USA. Look for his video named Venture Arcade for the 5200. I'm pretty sure that uh, the 8-bit version is almost identical. Uh, but take a look at that. It's a really nice. Um, it's a really really nice version of Venture. Also, uh, recently released for the Atari 8-bit is Heli Commander, and it's a version of Choplifter. It's also available at Video 61 and Atari Sales. Now, Peter J. Meyer, um, I'm not quoting him verbatim, but semi-paraphrasing, he was basically saying that he was trying to make a choplifter-type game that more closely resembles the Sega Master System or arcade version of the original Apple II or the mono-colored Atari 8 version. This game uses several techniques with DLIs, changing S-scroll, and color registers to get a great 3D effect on the screen. Also changes with the player missile registers 
so that more sprites can be placed on screen at once. The result is a beautiful multicolored screen with clouds in the sky, mountains in the background, each scrolling at a different rate. Great parallax scrolling graphics giving an excellent 3D effect and gameplay. There are a variety of enemies, including enemy choppers, planes, jets, and drones. On the ground, you have tanks, armored vehicles, and jeeps. Buildings include command centers, prison, communication towers, and radar stations. And um, I remember when we reviewed Choplifter long ago. So it would be interesting. I might get. I might pick this up for the Atari XCGS. It would. It might be an interesting game to take a look at. Now, lastly, but not XCGS related, but definitely Atari related, I ordered for my Atari 2600 two games from Champ Games. One is Robot War 2684. It has a co-op version or a co-op mode. And Ladybug Arcade, which is an update to Champ Games 2006 Ladybug game. So as people know, I have an Atari XCGS, I have an Atari 5200, and I still love my Atari 2600. So anything Atari is is great. Sweet. Well, you have to let us know how those games turn out. I will. They're all on pre-order right now. <laughs> Maybe the next show. Maybe the next show, which is supposed <laughs> to be within another 60 to 90 days max. You've got to get it out so people don't know already know how the game's playing. Yeah, I know, I know. I'm sure all the listeners are going... Uh, yeah, yeah, right. Whatever. <laughs> We've heard this old song and dance before. Yeah, we'll see you next year with another episode. Okay, whatever. Oh, oh this is all new old song and dance. So, okay. <laughs> well, I guess we should get on to our first game. That is Karataka, um, published by Atari. Um, the year is 1988. Uh, the original version, 19, well, I should say the original Atari version, which came on disc, was 1985. The model number is RX8095. Its genre is arcade beat-em-up. Developers were Jordan Mechner, so he was the original game creator for the Apple II, Robert Cook, who programmed the Atari conversion from sculptured software, and the music was Francis Mechner. Yep, that's Jordan's dad. He was an accomplished musician, I guess. Uh, number of players is uh, either one, two-player practice, and then there's also a demo. So when two-player practice is basically just go head-to-head and beat each other up. It, it, you know, that's all it is, just to get used to uh, the controls. Uh, and speaking of controls, we have either joystick or keyboard. I recommend the joystick. Um, and the back of the box uh, description says, the evil warlord Akuma destroyed your village and kidnapped Princess Mariko. You alone can rescue the innocent princess from the tyrant's terrible dungeon. Armed only with your courage and karate skills, you punch and kick your way past one deadly guard after another into Akuma's stronghold to save your princess. Six mighty palace guards to overcome. Use your skill and will to win. Special practice op option allows you to compete against your friend. Let's talk about playing the game. Start off with the title screen. Title says uh, Karataka, which fills the screen accompanied by a musical sting. Um, I just want to take a moment to discuss how the word is pronounced. Now, when this game came out, we had no way of knowing uh, how a, a game was pronounced. So me and my friends just called it Karataka. Um, but I've heard other people pronounce it differently. David, how do you pronounce it? 
Well, I would have pronounced it that way, but for some reason, I've heard it pronounced Karatika. Yep. I've heard that so too. So now I have to say Karatika. You have to say it. Well, I have to say it. You don't have to say it because <laughs> I looked up on the internet. I was like, okay, well, how do you say it? There's got to be somebody out there like Jordan's got to be being interviewed someplace. And sure enough, yep. In 2012, this was actually a video he put out specifically how to pronounce it. And he pronounced it. I called it Karateka. But he said it. He, there's more of a Japanese way of pronouncing it. So he goes, Karateka, something like that. He just gives you permission to pronounce it however you want. So there's really no, according to Jordan, there's no wrong way of pronouncing the, the word. However you pronounce it is fine. Don't feel bad. It's all good. So I'm going to go with Karateka and you can call it Karateka. We're all good. Um, and there was a 2015 interview where he was, he mentioned it again and, um, he basically called it Karateka. I guess he's sticking with that uh, pronunciation, but, um, now we know, and I'm so glad. (laughs) Well, to be honest, I think, I think it better just to pronounce it karate, uh, karateka. Well, I think karate. Yeah, because I think right away I hear the word karate in there. Right, right. That's all I thought. When I, when I hear karatika, it's like, I don't know, is this some kind of like, uh, I don't know, some kind of like food to eat? Or? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> like, that sounds delicious. <laughs> the side of karatika, kar- 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 I can't even say it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and on that title screen, um, I thought it was such an interesting font. I was thinking, well, I wonder if I could find a, a Windows version of it. And sure enough, um, there is the version uh, called um, Livingston. Livingstone, sorry, Livingstone. Um, and it's free online, so if you're interested in that cool font, you want to put it in something, go right ahead and find it. I do remember something about in the book, in Jordan's book, I think his friend told him about the font. But I, for the life of me, I could not find it again. So I'll have to read through it again and find out what the name of the font was. It'd be funny if it's the same font, but um, yeah, anyway. Um, oh, and going back to the screen and below um, at the very bottom of the screen is the copyright information, uh, including Broader Buns, 1982 creation date and Atari's 1988 date. So after the, the beautiful title screen, you're, you're shown a intro scroll and basically the scroll just gives you kind of a synopsis of what's going on. It says high atop a craggy cliff guarded by an army of fierce warriors stands the fortress of the evil warlord akuma deep in the darkest dungeons of the castle akuma gloats over his lovely captive the princess mariko you are one trained in the way of karate the karateka i see i almost said karateka (laughs) and grilled karateka is very Mm. delicious (laughs) alone and unarmed you must defeat akuma and rescue the beautiful mariko Put fear and self-concern behind you. Focus your will on your objective, accepting death as a possibility. This is the way of the Karataka. This is the way. This is the way. This is the way. So after the scroll, we're presented it with a room with doorways on the left and right side of the screen. In the center is the beautiful Princess Mariko. And just to the right is the evil warlord Akuma standing menacingly. Next to the left-sided is one of Akuma's guards standing at attention. Akuma raises his hand and points to the right opening, commanding the princess to enter. With her head hung low in sadness, she unwillingly inches towards the entrance. The room she enters is a sparse cell with only a bench for her to rest upon. As the door slams behind her, she collapses onto the floor out of hopelessness.
But what's this? It's our hero, who emerges from the edge of the cliff and lifts himself up and onto the platform of the castle entrance. But be careful, you can back over the cliff and fall to your death. Uh, in the background is the majestic Mount Fuji. Immediately you will confront your first adversary. One of many of Akuma's castle guards. Let the battle begin. I, want, I wanted to say is I couldn't believe it myself. But, I w- you know, once you climb up on the cliff, mm-hmm. right at the beginning of the game, and I was just testing out the controller, you know, let's see, you know, how, you know, moving forward and backward. And I moved it backward. And, you know, I'm so used to playing games where sort of like you can go one direction, but you really can't go another direction. Right. So I was so surprised when, you know, basically I committed Harry (laughs) Carey. Yeah. What is this? Game over. (laughs) It's it's kind of funny. They You know, Jordan does give you some times when if you do something stupid, you die. And I like that. So. (laughs) Yeah. I was just, I, I just couldn't believe it, but I like that it's in there actually. Okay, so this game has only one difficulty level. As your player progresses, he will encounter tougher opponents that display different fighting styles until you finally take on the big boss, the warlord Akuma. We checked several manuals for different systems and none of them covered the differences of your opponents. The only way to really tell is by their helmets or kabuto and the amount of health they start with. As previously mentioned, there is also a practice mode that allows for two players to battle one another. Now let's talk about the controls. You can choose between a joystick or keyboard. These are the moves as follows. I will first reference the joystick move first, followed by the keyboard actions. To run forward, move the stick to the upper right or press the space bar and then the right arrow key. To assume a fighting stance, move the stick to the center or press the space bar while running. You have to be in a fighting stance to perform fighting actions. If you are hit while not in a fighting stance, you will be knocked out and the game will be over. And yes, I have gone through that many times. I went like running like crazy. I thought I'm just going to bulldoze this guy over. I'm going to like run so fast and do like some flying high kick. Yeah. And I'm going to beat him in one shot. And all of a sudden he gives me one shot. Yep. Game over. (laughs) Now, fighting stance moves are as follows. Advance. Move the joystick to the right. Press the right arrow key to retreat. Move the joystick to the left, but not so far that you fall off the cliff. Or press the left arrow key to kick. There are three areas on your opponent you can kick to. There's a high kick. Hold the fire button and move the joystick to the upper right. Or press the W key. Mid-level. Hold the fire button and move the joystick to the right. Or press the S key. Low kick. Hold the fire button and move the joystick to the lower right or press the X key. Now let's talk about punches. Like kicks, you can target the same areas. You have three areas on your opponent that you can punch to. High punch. Press the fire button and move the joystick to the upper right 
or press the Q key. Mid-level punch, press the fire button and move the joystick to the right or press the A key. Low-level punch, press the fire button and move the joystick to the lower right or press the Z key. For the Canadians out there, press the Z key. Okay. <laughs> While kicks are slower, they do offer better range than punches. So you'll probably find yourself starting off by kicking, and if you get in close range, you can switch to punching. Each successful strike will take away one health triangle. Assuming standing position, move the joystick up or press the space bar. To bow, yes, you can bow to your opponent before the battle begins and he beats you. If your <laughs> opponent is standing, he will reciprocate. Move the joystick up and press the fire button or press the space bar and then the B key. I can actually see how in some ways um, playing this game on the keyboard, you could really be more specific with the differences between punches and kicks where I found with the joystick, you know, sometimes I wanted to do a kick, but, at a, but it happened to be a punch instead. Right, right. I can see with the keyboard that you could be a lot more uh, accurate with what move you want to do. Yeah. But again, I'm too old. <laughs> I can't <laughs> handle keyboard. A joystick is more than enough. Darn you, carpal tunnel. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about the gameplay, single player. The single player gameplay is pretty straightforward. Run to the right until you see your opponent. Change to a fighting stance and whittle their health down until you are victorious. Then rinse and repeat. Health is determined by multiple triangles at the bottom of the screen. You start out with 14 and will regain any lost ones every four seconds. When either opponent's health goes below three arrows, they will flash. For your player, you will get a warning sound. If you or your opponent loses all of their arrows, that person is dead. If you are the victor, you will hear some victory music and move on to your next opponent with the bonus of getting some of your health back. If it's you, the game is over. Here is where we're thinking about putting in a spoiler alert, but we think that after 38 years, most of you listening have played the game. If not, stop listening now and go play it. You have been warned. The game is broken up into three areas. These aren't mentioned in the manual, so I'll give my best to name them. The Cliff and Tori, the Anteroom, and the Dungeon. Although most of your enemies you will encounter are human, you must also watch out for the Spite Gate or Portculus, which, when you get close, will slam down upon you, killing you instantly. There are also doors you must kick open, probably because none of them appear to have doorknobs. During the cinematics, you will notice a pet eagle perched upon Akuma's shoulder. He will send this out to attack you prior to your engagement with him. As with all of the enemies, you will get the enemy reveal music prior to him appearing. To defeat it, time your kicks or punches at the height in which it attacks you. If you deplete its health, he will disappear into a cloud of feathers. It is now time to efface Akuma. 
into the next room and kick in the door because there are no doorknobs. <laughs> Akuma will immediately attack you in the doorway, so you might want to back up a little. If you defeat Akuma, he will fall to the floor, sprawled out, and funny enough, he appears to grow about a foot taller. <laughs> now it's time to rescue the princess. Run into her cell and into her open arms for a celebratory kiss. Of course, if you approach her in a fighting stance, she will take you down with one well-placed kick to the family jewels. And the family jewels? The family jewels, man! Wow, that's very interesting. <laughs> I personally have not played to that. I, I personally have not gone to that point in the game. So I nice remember well, I remember back in the day I tested that just to see what happened. And yeah, she kicked you in the balls. Okay. <laughs> so one has to wonder if she could take you up with a single kick. Why the heck did you have to rescue her at all? <laughs> You're given a final message that says... And so this adventure ends. The evil Akuma lies vanquished. The beautiful Mariko safe in your arms. For the first time in memory, the village basks in the sunlight of peace. But beware, for the true Karateka, there is always a next time. Now let's talk about the two-player practice for Kumate, Kumate, Kumate. In this mode, two players face off with each other. Joystick 1 operates player 1, who looks like our hero, and Joystick 2 operates one of Akuma's warriors. Keyboard control does not work in this mode. Each player starts with the same amount of health and are unable to leave the fighting area. As soon as one player is defeated, the practice mode resets and the battle begins again. Unfortunately, this mode contains no scoring system and is just there to get you familiar with the joystick movement for the main game or to end your friendship. <laughs> now, as for scoring, there is no score in this game. The only goal is to free the princess. If you're interested in determining a score, consider the time it took for you to complete the game. Aka speedrun. Let's talk about some of the history and trivia of the game. So a karate practitioner is called a karateka and Akuma means devil in Japanese. Uh, it's probably well known that how Jordan Mechner made his character's movements so uh, realistic. But if you don't, it's done by an old-fashioned animation process called rotoscoping, which was created by animator um, Max Fleischer in 1915. The animation technique has animators trace over a moving picture footage frame by frame to produce a realistic action. Then those traced images are painted over. This process is also done for The Prince of Persia and used in films such as Disney's uh, Snow White and Seven Dwarfs, Ralph Bakshi's animated The Lord of the Rings, and Heavy Metal, just to name a few. As previously mentioned, uh, at the beginning of Karateka, you see a mountain in the background, which is looks a lot like Mount Fuji. Well, in fact, it's supposed to be Mount Fuji. Uh, this is confirmed in Mechner's book. Mount Fuji is actually located 100 kilometers southwest of Tokyo. Remember this because it will be important. Now, the martial arts that eventually evolved into karate originated in China over a period of centuries, becoming systemized on the island of Okinawa in the 17th century. Okinawa's main island is located 400 miles from the mainland uh, Japan. 
Interest in boxing in Japan came alive in 1921 when a match was shown in Japan theaters between American uh, Jack Dempsey and French war hero George Carpentier. As fighting styles go, Japan only had kendo, which uses bamboo sticks, and judo, jujitsu, and uh, akijutsu, akido, consists of throwing and grappling, and didn't really have anything that resembled the fighting style of Western boxing. After the Emperor Hirohito was given a demonstration of karate while visiting Okinawa, the interest in the martial arts took off in mainland Japan. Now, why am I telling you all this? Well, in 1868, Japan experienced a political revolution, which ended the feudal system or military dictatorship. But Japan had been moving away from that direction for quite some time. What this means is that since karate wasn't introduced to Japan until 1921, and the last warlord existed some 50 years prior to that, our Yale-educated Mechner took some liberties with the history of telling Karataka's story. Wouldn't be the first time <laughs> college education or university education was wrong. Yes, that's true. Uh, if you want to hear more about the origins of karate and the truth around other historical myths, I'd like to recommend a podcast called Our Fake History with attention to episode 125 and uh, following bonus episode where it clears up a couple of the mistakes he made. Um, we'd also like to recommend uh, Bill Wirtz's History of Japan on YouTube. As always, we provide the links in the show notes. Let's talk about the legacy of this game. It originated on the Apple II in 1984. It appeared on the Commodore 64 in 1985, which was also written by Robert Cook. It was on the Famicom in 1985. It appeared on the Atari 7800 in 1988. And also on the CPC, MSX, and Spectrum in 1990. In 2012, there was a remake of this game available on Windows, iOS, Xbox 360, and PS3. And in 2013, the classic version was available on Android and iOS. Okay, Michael, now it's time for the review. What, what are your thoughts? Well, I, uh, I played this game back in the day. I remember where I first played it. We were at a, um, a copy party, actually, <laughs> pirating software. And um, somebody brought it on, and I and I it was it was a great game. Um, I think though I beat it um, while I was there at the party. So, but still, it was such a beautiful game that I got a copy of it. Um, but as far as beauty uh, for graphics, I give it a nine. This is a visual splendor, and nothing that comes um, close to it in my memory matches the cinematics. Um, it doesn't really tap into the abilities of the Atari much, but it's a you know, it's a it's a port from the Apple, so it's kind of what you expect. But it's as far as the visuals, it's beautiful. Sound and music, I give it an eight. Uh, all the music is very one bit a you know one bit ishy because again, it's it's probably made on the Apple. Uh, the music was just ported over. Um, but it it the music is there's there's stings and there's it's cinematic and it's just it's really well done. Um, I I wish they had given it the Atari treatment, but you know. What do you expect? Um, in fact, the funny thing is, and, uh, Mechner actually mentioned that um, he gave a credit to the Atari and C64 music as uh, being superior. And he, he said, it actually, quote, made him want to cry. So he was uh, pretty impressed by the, the port. Uh, for gameplay, I only give it a six. And the, the reason for this is the, the game does provide ever-increasing challenges. 
uh, as the player progresses. But then when you beat the game, there's no other levels to do. So there's really no reason to play it. And I figure you one or two times, or sorry, maybe three times playing through this game, you'll get to the point where you you know how to play the game and it won't be a challenge anymore. So I don't see, you know, a lot of replayability um, with this game. It's just, it's a, it's a visual, visually stunning, but um, I think that Jordan could have probably made it a little more challenging, maybe made it so that the, you didn't have as much health or the, there was a little more AI with the guys, but you know, you get what you get. Um, but I, you know, I do say it is a, a triumph for the 8-bit system. Um, as, as far as games go, there's again, nothing looks like it, but the controls are a little, I find that when I'm playing it, it feel a little muddy, a little slow. Uh, so it's not as, not as snappy as I wish a fighting game would be. As far as presentation, now here's it. It's a 10. Uh, the game is, a, like I said, a cinematic masterpiece. And I, after reading Jordan's book, I can definitely see where he got a lot of his inspiration from. Um, and, you know, I don't th- think you could have expected something like that from a computer p- prior to that. So um, as far as the box goes, um, cover image uh, is the same one on the disc version. And is, I think it's very well done. Um but because Atari had to use the XC box style, I think the blue clashes with the cream and tans of the original box color theme from the broader bun disc version. Compared to the disc version, the back of the box of the XE version was only had two images, while the disc version shows three, and they are taken from three different locations, while the XE version is only two shots, shots from the outside the castle. Uh, also, the disc version tells much more uh, of the a Karateka story. As far as the manual, it's your typical XE manual style, but it's um, isn't too far off from the disc version. So comparing the two, you get what, you know, it's basically the same. It's a wash. But overall score, I give it an eight. I think it's a beautiful game and one worth experiencing. But, you know, after being dazzled by the visuals, you'll soon find yourself experiencing repetitive gameplay. So um, that's my, uh, that's my review. What do you think, David? Well, I just wanted to say, like you were saying with this game, you know, once you kind of master it you and you've played it two, three times, you pretty much may never go back to it. Yeah. Well, you could do what Nintendo did and make the game only beatable by a computer <laughs> and basically stretch a five-minute game into months Wow. of gameplay. I remember playing a game called Trojan, and it was, for me at that time, it was a very unforgiving game, and... In or, and and as I got closer and better and closer and better and died a thousand deaths to get to finally to get to the end of the game, I remember hooking it up to the VCR so I could tape. Oh wow! The end of the game so I could show my friends, hey guys, <sighs> this is how the game ends. That's an achievement. Well, yeah, Battletoads is infamous for way too you know? hard yeah and now you see these guys do speed playing and oh, they're yeah. like 10 minutes are finished yeah exactly okay <laughs> all right so what's my ratings graphics i gave it an eight love the way the characters are animated on the screen via rotoscoping technique your health bar and that of your opponents is easy to see everything you need to know and see is right there without taking your eyes off the action the cutscenes are cinematic and make good use of the negative spaces, allowing you to narrow your focus on the story unfolding. Sound and music. The music does not take full advantage of the pokey, but it does a really good job of setting the mood. For gameplay, I gave it an 8. 
you can do a lot with a joystick in one button. Punch and kick, low, medium, and high. Doesn't seem to have any way to block your opponent's attack other than backing away. You can even give your opponent a bow. I like the scenes in which the boss orders another baddie to take you out. Fight off the guards and watch out for that hawk and get to the emperor for the big showdown. I felt that the difficulty really increased once I beat the third guard. Presentation, I also give it a 10. Although we have the usual XCGS packaging, that was made up with a great intro to the game with the foreboding music. Gives you the whole story, who are the characters, what is your mission. This is done through text and animated sequences. I like how they simulated shadows and the effect of when an opponent or you get hit. Reminds me in the comics, that old Biff Bang Pow. Overall score, you got the storytelling, the graphics, the non-complex controls that allowed a novice player like me to get into the game quickly. It would get a higher score if not for the lack of opponent variety and the sometimes seemingly delay in the movement of the joystick to the character doing the action on the screen. So I will give it an 8.25 out of 10. So I'll round it up to an 8.5 out of 10. Okay, everybody, it's time for review number two. And this game we're going to be talking about is Load Runner, spelled L-O-D-E space runner. It's published by Atari USA. The year was 1987, but it did appear on disc and cassette in 1983. The model number is RX8082. The genre is arcade platformer, single screen. The developers were Douglas E. Smith of the original 1983 version and Chuck Peavy of the XCGS version. The number of players is one and there's a demo. Controller options are joystick and keyboard. Now let's read the back of the box. You are a highly trained galactic commando deep in enemy territory. Power hungry leaders of the repressive bungling empire have stolen a fortune in gold from the peace loving Galactans. You have just discovered the enemy's secret underground treasure hoard. Your mission, should you decide to accept it, infiltrate each of the 75 subterranean levels, evade the bungling guards, and recover every last batch of bungling booty. Hold on there. Correction. The description on the box is incorrect. Because there are 150 levels, not 75. The manual actually gives you the correct number of 150. And we actually verified there are more than 75 levels. It appears that 1998's Load Runner 2 only had 75 levels. So we're not sure why this version listed this as the number of levels. They probably didn't go to proofreading.com. Okay. <laughs> okay. Run jump, climb, and blaze your way through maze-like catacombs. You must recover all the gold. Some of it's hidden in walled over rooms and dangerous dead ends or carried by the guards. Your only defense is your laser drill pistol. Trap the bungling guards in a freshly drilled pits and force them to surrender any gold chests they protect. Don't get trapped yourself. Collect all the gold in a level and then advance towards the surface and freedom. 
You'll never run out of imaginative and cunning adventures because built into LoadRunner's unique program is the option that lets you create your own fascinating challenges. You can actually build your own puzzles and scenes. No programming knowledge is required. Let's talk about playing the game. I first want to take a moment and talk about composite artifact colors or artifacting. This works by exploiting quirks in the NTC color system called artifact color, which TVs were attempting to suppress. Load Runner mostly uses two and a half colors, one hue at two luminances plus a border, known as graphics mode eight or the really high def one. But with artifacting, this mode will generate four colors at Atari's highest resolution, depending on how the pixels are placed next or separate from one another. For those using an emulator, such as Altera, remember to turn on the artifacting so you get those pretty colors as well. I know some people ran into issues playing this game like Choplifter, where everything looked like graphics were black and white bands, or with the case with Load Runner, pink bands. So let's talk about the title screen. The display in large and varying characters, Broderbund Software Presents Load Runner by Doug Smith. Also displayed is the copyright info, 1983 and 1987, Atari Corporation, and stating that the XE ROM version was done by Chuck Peavy. You all should remember Chuck from the previously reviewed Dark Chambers and Fight Night. If the game is on and you leave it alone, a demo will start after 15 seconds. The demo will play out as an automated player, will complete two levels and then die. You're then brought back to the title screen. The demo doesn't restart again, which seems unusual since demos tend to be a form of screensaver. When we talk about levels, you have 150 of them, so you'll probably spend plenty of time behind the joystick if you want to complete them all. There is also an option to skip levels, which is a nice feature. We'll talk about that later. How about the elements that make up a level? The platforms are comprised of brick floors. These are the floor that you can drill through. Solid surfaces, these you cannot drill through. Trap doors. When playing the game, these look like brick floors, but act like empty spaces, making you fall through them. Climbing structures, ladders, this allows you to climb to different levels. Hand over hand bars, this allows you to climb between platforms separated by an empty space. The collectibles are gold chests. You must collect all of these before the hidden ladder is displayed, allowing you to exit the level. Every level will have obstacles. The bungling guards, these are the only things you have to avoid in the game other than trapping yourself in a hole. These guys don't run as fast as you. There are multiples out them, so try to outsmart them with their limited zombie AI logic. All right, let's talk about the controls. As previously mentioned, the game allows you to control your character by joystick or keyboard. Uh, to enable the joystick for gameplay, just press Control-J. To enable the keyboard for gameplay, press Control-K. Climb up using the joystick, you just push it up. Uh, for a keyboard, press the I key. To climb down, you push down on the joystick. Or on the keyboard, press K. To run left, joystick goes left. For a keyboard, press J. To run right, push the joystick right and press L on the keyboard. 
To drill right with your player facing right, press the fire button. On the keyboard, press O. So you can be facing left and press the O key and it'll drill right with the keyboard. So there's an advantage there. With the joystick, you're going to be facing the direction. To drill left with the joystick, with your player facing left, press the fire button. Uh, for the keyboard, you press the U key. There's also additional keyboard commands, uh, control A or pressing the option key. Uh, this will sacrifice your current player and display a new screen. Control D that toggles the direction your drill. Uh, by default, the drill will dig in the direction the player is facing, but this option allows you to set drilling to happen behind the player. So as I said before, with the joystick facing left, if you push the fire button, it drills in front of the player. Now when you turn this thing on, it'll drill behind him. Control Z, this toggles the telescoping scene change. This feature is on by default and appears as an inward moving circle, uh, moving the current level from view and then transitioning to an uh, outward moving circle that reveals the next level. This is cool looking, but if you want to um, advance to the levels faster, I just turn it off. Control U, this is advances the game one level and Control F adds extra lives. Left arrow uh, slows down the game speed. Each press slows down the game uh, further. You can do this any time of the game, so you speed or slow down. And um, right arrow, uh, this allows you to speed up the game. So each press speeds up the game even further. Press Control R to end your game, and you will see a game over sign in the middle of the screen. Gameplay. The concept of it is simple, but since this is a puzzle game, the challenges are real. You start with five lives, and to reveal the exit ladder, you need to collect all the gold chests. If the bungling guards move over a gold chest, uh, he will pick it up. Uh, your drill can be used to put down a temporary hole in the brick, but not in a solid ground, as previously mentioned. This hole can allow uh, you to drop through to other levels or trap the bungling guards. When While trapped, the player can walk over them, and if they had gold in their hands, they drop the gold, you can pick it up. Now let's talk about the board editor. As mentioned, you have 150 levels to play, but if that's not enough for you, or you feel like you'll just take a shot at making your own level, the game includes a board level editor, which allows you to design, save, test, and play, and erase your own load runner game boards. You press Control E from the title or the demo screen. You will then be presented with a screen that states, load runner board editor by pressing the escape key it aborts any command and then you will see a cursor next to a command prompt you will now be editing board 151 in rom mode while the game runs you will be able to access this new level you've created but wouldn't it be better if you could just save the levels you created surprise you can by connecting a disk drive or a futuristic alternative storage device, you can permanently save up to 151 of your own game boards. Press D to toggle between disk and ROM mode. The message disk mode activated will be displayed and you will be taken back to the title screen. Of course, if you go back into the board edit and hit the D key again, you'll go back into ROM mode. Before you start creating and saving your own game boards, you must first insert a blank disk to save these game boards. While in the board editor screen, hit I to initialize the disk. You will get a warning that states, this formats the diskette for the user created levels. Caution, it erases the entire diskette at first. 
Are you sure? Yes or no? Choose yes if you would like to live dangerously. Hit the E key to start editing a level. By default, your first option will be 001. Use your arrow keys to move over each digit to choose a different level number or hit enter to choose the current level. You'll be shown a blank level with a score, men, and level number shown at the bottom. As previously mentioned, you have 10 items that you can use to design your own levels. These are O, empty space, one brick floor, two solid surface, three ladder, four hand over hand bars, five trap doors, six escape level ladder, seven gold chest, eight bungling guard, you can place up to five of these, nine load runner, the player, you can only place one of these. You must have one ladder, three or six, leading to the top of the screen to escape to the next level. This means you don't need a hidden ladder to escape, but it sort of takes the challenge out of it. The other shapes have numerical limits. It doesn't state this limit, just if you go over it, the program will ignore the extra shapes. Cursor movement. Unfortunately, you don't use the cursor keys, but instead you use the keys for navigation. These are I for cursor up, J for cursor left, K for cursor right, M for cursor down. Some additional commands. Right arrow displays the next highest level. Left arrow displays the next lowest level. If you're currently editing an unsaved board, you will be given a warning. Level had been changed but not saved. Do you wish to save modified level, yes or no? By pressing N for no, this brings you back to the editor level but clears the entire screen. Scoring. Completing a level is 1,500 points. Picking up a gold chest is 250 points. Trapping a guard is 75 points. Having a guard perish in a pit is 75 points. And you gain an extra life after completing a level. All right, it's time for that history and trivia time. Um, the original name of Load Runner was actually called Kong. It was written for a uh, Prime Computer 550 mini computer uh, located on the University of Washington campus. Hey, by my neck of the woods. Um, it was programmed in Fortran and used ASCII graphics. Over one weekend in 1982, Doug recreated crude but playable version for the Apple II Plus. At that point, he re renamed the game Miner. To be honest, Miner would have been a better name for this game. Yeah. <laughs> because when I see Load Runner, I don't know what load you're running. Exactly. It just, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. I, there, I'm sure there's some reason for calling it like a load, like a, like a bunch mm -hmm. of gold is a load maybe. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. In October 1982, he submitted more a more limited version of the game to Broderbun, but received a one-line rejection letter telling him it didn't fit within their product line. Smith's new version had better animation and included a level letter, one of the first to have one. He purchased a color monitor, which allowed him to enhance the game and used neighborhood kids to test the game. Around Christmas, he submitted the game, now called Load Runner, to Sierra... Cirrus, Synergistic, and Broderbun. Now, some of you might have noticed the reference to the Bungling Empire. Of course, we recognize this reference in Dan Gorlin's 1982 game, Choplifter. It was also used in Will Wright's 1984 game, Raid on Bungling Bay. All of these are, of course, Broderbun-produced games and were the first games that had a thematic crossover not based on a non-video game material. 
If you'd like to know more about Chuck PV, the XE-ROM version developer, you can listen to him on the Antic Podcast interview episode 14. There is also a thread on the Atari Age forum titled Load Runner Chuck PV Conversion. In that, Randy Kindig said that he received an email response from Chuck who said, So the code was Apple, but I got the levels off of a disk that was a nightmare for the Atari. That's how I got all 150 levels. There were no sprites in the code because the graphics were sort of character mapped, so it was easy enough to convert. I am fuzzy on a few points. I remember spending hours getting the AI for the bad guys to emulate properly, so play would be the same as it was on my Commodore 64, my personal favorite version. So in a nutshell, it's a hybrid. Atari maps, Apple code. Would Atari code have been easier? Of course. Did they give me Atari source code to work with? Of course not. Uh, yeah, they put a little winky face in there. This conversion took me four months, longer than any other, and they paid me as if it were an easy conversion. So that kind of sucked, but I got my name on Loadrunner. Can't ask for better than that. Let's talk about the legacy. Loadrunner has an impressive port legacy with a total of 24 systems. So if you want to play this game, you have no excuse not to. Now, originally, we weren't going to be bothered with covering every system and version of the game. But there are so many that it started to be interesting. Hopefully you'll find this interesting. We did our best to confirm the date of the game releases on that system. We've left out clone computers and clone games. Load Runner, 1983 Atari APA computer on a disc, Apple II, VIC-20, MS-DOS, MSX, C64, NEC PC-8801, and PC-9801. In 1984, Fujitsu Micro 7, ZX Spectrum, Sega SG-1000, Sharp X1, Macintosh, NES Famicom, NEC PC-6001. In 1985, the BBC Micro. In 1989, Atari ST, Amstrad CPC, Amiga. I generally wouldn't mention a copy, but there is also Mindrunner, which looks exactly the same as Load Runner and might actually function better. 1996, Atari Lynx, PC-88, PC-9801, Nintendo's Virtual Console, and the Electronica BK NEC PC-8001. And what about sequels and reimaginings? Well, uh, there is Load Runner, The Bungle Bay Strikes Back, arcade game in 1984, Chance, uh, championship load runner for the Atari 8-bit, Apple II, Commodore 64, MF7, MXX, NES, PC-88, PC Booter, SG-1000, SMC-777 in 1984, load runner, The Golden Labyrinth, Arcade, 1985, load runner 2, MSX, 1985, load runner rescue, Atari 8-bit, C64, 1985. This is uh, isometric, similar to Crystal Castles, but the gameplay doesn't seem to be similar to how the previous Load Runners played. So it's kind of a new game, unique game. Load Runner, oh boy, here we go. Okay, That's, let me say that one. You do that one. Okay, let me say that one. Okay. Load Runner, Taikoku Karano Dashutu Arcade, 1986. Good job. Super Load Runner, Famicom Disk System, MSX, in 1987. Horizon Ban Load Runner PC98 in 1989, Hyper Load Runner for the Game Boy in 1989, 
Load Runner Lost Labyrinth for the TurboGrafx-16 in 1990. Battle Load Runner for the TurboGrafx-16 in 1993. It was also released in... Uh, uh, re-released in 2007 on Nintendo Virtual Console System on the Wii, and it also featured multiplayer. Uh, Load Runner: The Legend Returns for DOS, Windows, PlayStation, Sega Saturn, Mac OS in 1994. Load Runner Twin: Justy to Liberty No Daiboken uh, for the SNES in 1994. This was not released in the U.S. because it's Japanese. Uh, Load Runner, plain Load Runner for Windows, Mac, OS in 1984. This just has updated graphics. Load Runner Online, that Mad Monk's Revenge for Windows, Mac, OS in 1995. Load Runner Extra for PlayStation and Sega Saturn in 1997. Load Runner 2 for Windows, Mac, OS in 1998. That's right. This is the second game with that name. This one is also has isometric layout but doesn't play like Load Runner's Rescue, the other isometric version. Load Runner 3D for Nintendo 64 in 1999. Power Load Runner for the SNES in 1999. This one is also not released in the US. Load Runner, um, just playing Load Runner again by um, Wonderswan in 2000, and this is Japanese only. Another Load Runner, uh, this one's Domu Domu Dan no Yabo. For the Game Boy Color in 2000, and another Japanese-only game. Boy, this Japanese no love yabu that. for you. Yes. <laughs> Japanese love these puzzle games, I guess. Uh, Load Runner, The Dig Fight. <laughs> See what they did there? Arcade 2000. Now we're back to a 2D game in this one. Um, then there's Load Runner. Again, another just plain Load Runner for the GBA in 2002. Then Hudson's Selection Volume 1, Cubic Load Runner for the PlayStation 2 GameCube in 2003. This is another 3D version, but in this one, you can control your camera. Um, and this was also another one only released in Japan. Then Hudson's Best Collection Volume 2, a Load Runner collection for the GBA in 2005. Unlike the Volume 1 version, this is back to 2D again. Load Runner Nintendo DS in 2006. Uh, top screen shows the entire level, while the bottom only a portion. Um, Load Runner for the iPod Click Wheel game in 2008. Load Runner for the Xbox 360 2009. This one um, has more of a cartoony 3D with a camera fix facing the level that uh, slightly moves consistently, I guess, to give you that 3D feeling without going full 3D. So just kind of angles a little bit. Load Runner X for the Android in 2012. In this one, you only see a portion of the entire screen. Load Runner Classic. This is for the Windows uh, Phone in 7 and 8 version. iPhone, iPad, iPod in 2012. This looks almost identical to the original version. Load Runner 1 for the Android iOS. Uh, well, they, they seem to have found a way to not call this game just Load Runner. This one is has a more simplistic graphic style with minimal textures, and it was done in 2017. Load Runner Legacy, uh, Nintendo Switch, PlayStation 4, Windows, Mac OS in 2017. And that is it for Load Runner as of this date. But um, I guess in 2023... We'll get more Load Runner. Thank goodness you <laughs> left the clone versions out. <laughs> Can you believe this how many? Like, 
This is like this took longer than an actual review of the game. I know. It's just nuts. I did not when I started doing the research on this, I was like, holy cow, there's a ton of these. I've never even heard of I mean I played like the arcade one and a couple of the ones on the old computers and that was it. So I haven't been following the uh, legacy of Load Runner. So I guess it's rich view time. So um, back in the day, I had a buddy, shout out to the dwarf. He's probably not listening, but I'm giving him a shout out, who love, uh, love this game. And um, he not only completed all the levels of America correctly, but he also created a bunch of his own. So he would like bring them with him to these pirate parties we'd have and give them to us to play. And when um, I was working on this review, playing the games and stuff, my, my 22-year-old daughter said, um, she looked at it and said, the graphics look so simple, she thought I did it. So, I <laughs> compliment, <laughs> but talking about the graphics, I give them a six. I mean, to be honest, they're pretty basic. I am, I like the, um, the, the look of the classic running, uh, character from, you know, um, looks like Choplifter. Um, and I know that they wanted to maximize the gameplay area. So, you know, the guy had to be really small, so you're sort of limited still. Um, when it comes to graphics, it's, it's not really pushing the, the Atari at all. Uh, Sound of Music, I give it a three. I don't want to beg on this game, but it's minimalistic when it comes to the sound. It's sort of blame this on being poor of the Apple. Um, but because this isn't the Apple, they could have done better. Uh, but then again, of course, the you know Chuck was saying how he didn't get the source code. So it seems like he had challenges of his own. You just want to get, get through it. Uh, for gameplay, I give it an eight. It's very simple, but very addictive. And it does a great job of ramping up the difficulty slowly. I didn't feel like I ever got to a point where I was like, oh my gosh, this is just so hard. Um, you know, they just slowly got you into every game. And that's how a puzzle game should be. Um, and the soldiers are, you know, they're brain dead, basically. I mean, if you learn their patterns, you can kind of force them into certain areas, which is, I think is part of the strategy of the game. Presentation, I give it a five. I like the look of the title screen. Um, the circular ring that goes in and out um, is is neat looks it's a nice little transition touch but the manual is a typical xcgs uh which doesn't always do the best at explaining the game very well um and of course they um they just take graphics from the broader band uh, broader bund version which is extremely lazy in my opinion overall score i give this game a six um that might seem low for such a heralded game and for the gameplay it's it's very solid but the producers did nothing more than just put the 1983 Apple game on the 1987 XGS cartridge and sell it, which I felt was lazy. Although, from Chuck's perspective, he did work for it a little bit. Uh, still, I would recommend the game. Um, of course, the gameplay is rock solid, and the fact that it's been ported to so many systems proves this. Um, I just wish they had put some more effort into taking advantage of the XGS's capabilities. What do you think, David? Well, for graphics, I gave it a five. At least in this version, we have some color versus the original Apple II version. The splash intro screen is passable. The player animation is good. Everything is easily recognizable. I like the zoom in and zoom out transition effect between the levels. And I like the actually effect of the dissolving of the bricks. Now for sound and music, I gave it a five. It's super basic. The pokey is basically in idle mode here. Bloops and bleeps. 
and I swear I hear the Space Invader saucer sound effect when you're dissolving the bricks in front of you. Gameplay, I give it a seven. Simple gameplay and sort of puzzle-solving elements as you have to navigate ever-changing level designs. There are so many levels, in fact, that if you ever get to the end, you could probably play the game again as you probably forgot most of the prior levels from earlier on in the game. Although you will die many times, you just don't want to give up. You want to try it again and to see if this time, by doing something a little different, you can clear the level. Presentation, I'm going to give it a 6. It's the usual XCGS packaging, but it's nice enough, and that was the look of all of the XCGS games. Instantly recognizable that the game was playable on the XC game system. We have some screenshots and descriptions of the story slash mission on the back of the box. The game comes on a cart, but it allows it to be disk drive compatible so you can save your own levels, which I really like that about the game. Now, the overall score is 5.75, but because this was ported on 5 million gazillion systems, I'm going to increase it to 6 out of 10. We do have some color, bloops and bleeps, but the gameplay is there to keep you there for a while. Once you're bored of the built-in levels, you can make your own levels. However, I think it would have been more fun if a friend with the same game made the levels for you so they would be a surprise. Still a classic of the early 8-bit home computer games and still worth playing today. Well, and, and, and you know, that's exactly what happened to me. I had a friend who used to make the levels, so... <laughs> well, that's another one in the can. We got... That's good. No one done. Um, so uh, I guess the only thing that's left to say is goodbye, everybody, and thanks for listening. Goodbye until next time, and we promise it won't be in a year. Could be la- later than a year, <laughs> but it won't be a year. <laughs> In our next episode, we take a double shot at some light gun games. First, we head out to the country to help Grandpa rid his farm of all sorts of critters in Barnyard Blaster. Then we hit the big city to deal out some street justice in Crime Buster. You can find our latest episodes, news, and information on our website, www.xegs8bit.com. We also have links on there so you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We'd like to thank ComputeHer for giving us permission to use her song software as our show's theme song. You can visit ComputeHer at ComputeHer.com. That's ComputeHer.com for more information. Also, thanks to the folks who contribute to and maintain the Atari Mania database, Wikipedia, and other fine results of Google searching. We are part of the Throwback Network, a group of podcasters with one thing in common. We all love old things. Whether it's old video games, old movies, old toys, or simply old stories, the Throwback Network is the place to find them all. Visit throwbacknetwork.net to learn more. It was on the Famicom system in 1885. Atari 7- You said in 1885. I went back in time. Okay. <laughs> That's a, boy, Don't you remember 1885? They had arcades back then. Uh, yes, but they were like places where you get fruits and vegetables. I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think you put a quarter in, and you actually bought a real horse. Okay, let me. Get... <laughs> Hold on a second. Light kicks you can target the, the same... same their areas. Yeah, that's wrong here. Target... I did. Re- I did. Gone down. Gone down. <laughs> <laughs> that, that damn near is there. I guess I didn't proofread this as well as I should. Have. Let's see here. Light kicks. No, no, you can target no, no, the no. same. I think, uh, I think I'm, yeah, if I read this any further, areas. I'm going to turn to Gabby Johnson. Yeah. <laughs> okay.